You're listening to GP Works, the podcast for and about general practice from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Aileen O'Mara and with me today is Dr. Rita Doyle, the recently retired GP from the Bray family practice, but also an awful lot more than that. Rita, we're sitting here in your kitchen in Bray. This house is not just um, your home. It was your practice for a long time, wasn't it? It was my practice. Um, we started off married life in Greystones and then moved to Shankill. And we were really moving around Bray. I was working in Bray at the time. And so it made sense to buy a big house with space for the surgery. And uh, we did that 40 years ago. And um, uh, it, we, it took us at least five or six years before we could actually afford to purpose convert it. But we did eventually purpose convert it. Like there was no damp proof course. And um, what was our kitchen became my surgery. And we knocked down walls and built up bits and uh, had a surgery running uh, until July of last year. How many staff? Give me, give me an idea of the size of the surgery. Uh, three consulting rooms. So we had uh, two full-time doctors and a part-time doctor and a trainee and a nurse and three reception staff and a practice manager. So you were living over the shop, I mean, so you were basically here uh, absolutely, absolutely full time. And it made enormous sense when the kids were small and uh, if there was any issues, I was on the spot. Uh, when they became teenagers, it was more of an issue, um, though the, the older boys would, I would have done late evening surgeries for a long time. And the older boys would have done the secretarial work at that. And so uh, they gained respect, really, for for what I was doing and for the patients and um, or I, I could tell you a funny story about that. I was running very late one evening. I had some complicated problems. So the last patient was waiting maybe 45, 50 minutes. And I was waiting for a barrage when she came in and she said to me, that's a grand chap you have out there, which was one of my son's. And I said, why? What did he say? He said, when you took in the last patient, he came out of the office and sat down beside me and said, isn't she a pain the way she goes on and on and on? And by the time she came into me, she was eating out of my hands. So it was um, an interesting uh, prospect. I suppose in latter times, I found that I was inclined to work on in the evenings because I didn't have the pressure of having to get dinner for the children or that type of thing. And so that wasn't very healthy. And so in, in some ways, it's actually um, uh, better, uh, was better to, to stop that sort of practice. Because the, the kind of life that you're describing is, is actually the past, isn't it? I mean, the kind yes, of GP, the kind of life that a GP has now is very different to that. Very different to when I started. Absolutely very different. And um, more organised, I think, now. Um, patients are more demanding, but they also tend to keep the rules in inverted commas. Um, I never worked without an appointment system, so very, very rarely would people walk in off the street. Uh, it would be unusual. So you're able to, to manage your time better, and um, but the demands of patients are higher now than they would have been, and they know what they want sometimes when they come in. It's like going to the shop. Uh, they want a product, and this isn't always the appropriate uh, product. But, uh, yeah, very different to what it was 40 years ago, definitely. 40 years is a long time in general practice. Would you have any highlights from that time? 
Oh, loads of highlights and lowlights. Um, I mean, I had several patients when when I was leaving uh, Bray Family Practice who were in floods of tears. And I, I, I was sorry for them in the sense that I have known them for 40 years. And uh, now they were going to have to find somebody else. And I would understand that because if you learn to trust somebody and... You each consultation then is just an item in like a chapter in a book, and but you know what went before, and you don't have to check back on it all of the time. And it's amazing uh, what will come back to you at times. I remember sitting with a patient last year, and she was upset about something, and suddenly I said, "You were like this before," and she she didn't remember the incident, but I did, where she had been very upset. 25 years previously and I knew the cause and when I reminded her of it uh, she admitted that yeah this was the her response was now the same as it was then to a different trauma but that sort of reflection and reflecting back and the personal uh, element of medicine is so important and despite the fact that things have changed I think we lose personal doctoring at our peril I really think that that's the best value in town. Isn't that the theme of your talk that you gave to the to the college last year, saying general practice of you know a job, a vocation, or a passion? Yeah, and I think if if I um, look back on that, I wouldn't say or or or. I would say and 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 because I think it is all three. Uh, and I would always hold that if you're acutely unwell, the best doctor for you is the one nearest to you. Full stop. But for an ongoing relationship and for the management of chronic disease and that uh, personal doctoring is so important and can be facilitated in modern uh, times. Uh, it's a question of training staff to ask patients which doctor they want to see and it's a question of uh, the, the doctors organising their, their day uh, schedule so that there is time for ongoing care and uh, not passing it on to other people I think the you can often have a quicker consultation with somebody that you've known for years than somebody who just walks who's new to you and that you don't know the background and you haven't got a feel for what they're looking for that sort of thing and are you worried at all about you know the impact of the GP shortages that we're going through at the moment that people maybe feel that they can't see their GP or that they maybe say oh they won't have time to see me or you know should we be thinking about getting that message out that personal doctoring is at the essence of general practice it is the essence of general practice and I I I have no doubt about that and um, I the shortage of doctors there'll always be a shortage of doctors health has an insatiable appetite it will never nobody will ever say that is wonderful. You know, you can get bits that are wonderful, but there'll never be perfection in health. But uh, we need to be very careful how we spend our money. And uh, I, I watch forums on 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 the on my phone or whatever, and I see you know patients uh, or individuals within our own town saying how can I get a doctor? And the answers come back: try the video doctor, try this and that. And I'm saying. You know, just get on a list with a GP. Most people will have a list, a waiting list, and they will take you. And once you're there, you're there. And um, then you'll have the long-term relationship. I think it's it's so valuable. But it isn't valued by 
the powers that be or the paymaster. There is no um, there is no extra money for having a long term relationship. But for the doctor, it's also it's very valuable. It's a very personal thing, and it's a very rewarding uh, way. Uh, the motivation from corporate general practice is financial. Of course, you have to make a living. Okay, but it's not the prime reason that you're a doctor. And that's why I talk about the passion and the vocation side of it, because both of those are, are important as well as making money. But corporate general practice is now a fact of life in Ireland too, isn't it? It is a fact of life, but I would... Uh, and I, there are some very good people in it, don't get me wrong, but the, I, it's the motivation needs to change. Uh, and the very definition of corporate general practice is that it's there uh, with a financial... Um, and um, I know several people who have left uh, but I also know I know the reason why people sell their practices to corporate general practice is because the GMS pension is just not adequate and that's uh, but there are other ways of, of uh, handing over your practice other than handing it to corporate uh, practice and it's uh, it's just in my book it's it's the patients are missing out Let's talk about women in general practice. You were uh, a full-time GP, woman GP in Bray, and I think you were an exception at the time when you started out. I was the only full-time. There was another uh, doctor who did some part-time work, but to start with, I was the only full-time GP within, uh, female GP within uh, the town. And um, by golly, did I have to become good at women's health uh, very quickly because... uh, most of my days were spent at that time with women, particularly. I used when I started, um, the doctor who I worked with, uh, uh, worked for and, and with, uh, had had a, a, a female before me, and um, I started part time. And uh, I worked, I think it was four mornings and one afternoon a week, and the afternoon was just spent doing smears. Uh, absolutely, it was would have been nothing for me to have done. 18 or 20 smears on an afternoon. So the patients decided what my priorities were rather than me deciding what my priorities were. But he unfortunately, sadly, uh, uh, died very young uh, in his 40s. And the situation then was, do I stop, and look for another job, or do I go on? And after much soul-searching and a bit of mentoring from colleagues, um, I decided to go on, and uh, it was hard as a woman in those uh, days, and I certainly um, didn't always have the support of my male uh, colleagues. Uh, Why was that, do you think? Oh, I think a bit of it was jealousy, uh, because I was being sought for my gender rather than for my abilities, okay? And uh, it, the norm was the male GP, and uh, so when you were there full time, uh, uh, you were sought out. And uh, it's funny when you do general practice or medicine in general, but certainly general practice, when you start off and you're young, you do it's all women and children. And then you go on and it's menopause and um, other things. And then as you get older, your patients get older. And in fact, to become medicine becomes much more difficult because you now have... Uh, multi-morbidity you would have maybe you know uh, coronary heart disease hypertension diabetes heart failure 
um, respiratory problems all in the one patient. So uh, it actually becomes very much more complicated and um, you learn how to, to value things uh, differently. And how did you feel about the fact that you were almost like a magnet to women? You know, did, did you, you didn't choose that, sure you didn't? No, I didn't choose that, not at all. I mean, I, I, did, uh, I did some time in, in general medicine before I went into general practice. And um, so that might have been what I would have had a bent for. But like um, we had, uh, we had a, a new house and, and uh, small children and uh, I had to try and uh, benefit from what my, my patients were. And I did and I learned to enjoy it. And it's the relationship you have, no matter what you're doing with patients, it's the relationship that's so important. So coming back to women in general practice, as you say, uh, it's very different now, isn't it? It is very different. I mean, I have uh, enormous respect for for the young women general practitioners. I would not want them to go through some of the things that I had to go through. It's uh, it's evolved into a better and a more um, user friendly uh, profession. And if it's my experience that if you have a part-time woman, they give you much more than part-time. Um, it's part-time does not mean part good. In fact, they are often are so conscientious and uh, they uh, would often go the extra mile because they know they won't be there the next day or whatever. And um, the standard of their education and the young graduates we have today are just stunning. Uh, but any practice who values their staff will facilitate a young mother um, who may have issues and uh, you know that it mightn't be suitable for them to start at half eight in the morning or it might actually suit them to start very early in the morning or whatever but I think it behoves you know there are a whole lot of different uh, types of things that you can do to facilitate because their value is way more than what they're going to cost you, both financially and in uh, worrying about the patient's uh, terms. Uh, most of these uh, young women are absolutely fabulous and go the extra mile all of the time. So what you're saying is it's now a fact of life that we have to recognise that we have to provide a flexible career, for, particularly, say, for women when, they're ha- when their babies are young or when their children are young. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, I think coming up to the referendum now is interesting. It has always been the tradition in Irish society that the women look after the children. Now I see my own sons are much more hands-on than their father was, and that's not criticising him. It's just a different uh, generation. I think when we're looking at work planning and workforce planning, uh, women are going to need flexible uh, work hours. And I think in planning, you need to allow for that and maybe qualify 30% more to make up for that, that time uh, when it's very difficult for women to work full time and, and to maintain a family uh, I always remember uh, I was uh, working on the on the premises was good and I remember one day uh, sitting with a patient and uh, I got a, a text message in from one of my staff saying it's time you picked up X from school and I looked at the patient and I said listen I just have to go out on something urgent do you mind hanging on and he said no that's no problem and I said it could be 10-15 minutes he said that's no problem and I came back he was asleep on the couch <laughs> 
But I don't want that for the women today. I, that's not right, okay? It wasn't, it, you know, it, it, it ended up as funny, but it's not the right way. That The pressure of both is, is difficult, and I think we need to, to recognise that. And I don't think that's just in medicine. I think it's in, in all branches of the profession. I mean, my husband is a, a solicitor, and I know that... Um, some of the hours that the legal trainees work are outrageous. And uh, so we're much better at looking after our trainees than, uh, than some of the other professions. So we need to continue that and look after our graduates. And then what about retention? I mean, you, you do see a lot of women leaving general practice uh, around that time when, when, they're, when their children are young. And do you think, is that because they're not getting the flexibility they need or why? I think it's multi multifactorial. I think the flexibility is a, is a huge issue. Uh, childcare is a huge issue. That's but that's not specific to general practice, okay? But um, I think childcare and uh, the, the practice that doesn't facilitate. I'm not saying that they should facilitate every whim, but they can sit down and work out what suits both uh, parties. And I know that as as I got older and my kids got older and I would have younger doctors working with me, I did really try to make it easier for them to work out what they wanted to do and what suited me and we could come to a, to an agreement on things. And uh, But I would always understand if you've got a sick child, then you, you know, you just can't be in looking after other sick things and worrying about that child. You just have to deal with what's going on at home first, full stop. And the insights of being a mother of five juggling a practice as a full-time GP must have helped as well. Yes, I think so. And then you went on and became a, a leader in general practice. Tell us about the leadership roles you took on. Um, I suppose this states back, I, I often say that I, for the first kind of 15 years in practice, maybe I was uh, working in practice and mothering and, and wifing and housekeeping and then when my youngest guy went to school, I thought, now there's a bit more space here for my desires for other things. I think general practice, uh, I think 10 sessions a week is ridiculous. That's not full time. Full time is eight sessions a week. And I had other interests. I had particular interest in education. And um, I thought I juggled between general practice and, and teaching uh, uh, but came firmly down in, in to medicine but I to be able to combine my two uh, likes uh, I I suppose the first job that I got in the ICGP was as, as CME tutor and uh, that was I was the first CME tutor here in Wicklow we, uh, in the Wicklow area and um, I absolutely loved it it was just such a privilege to be able to teach uh, general practice to my colleagues and I learned so much and built so many relationships and I I know I used to have to drive down to Wicklow and Arklow and I'd be driving back at maybe 11 o'clock at night and my brain would be just going so fast with the amount of stimulation. And um, it broke down all the barriers between general practice, between general practitioners. It was absolutely uh, stunning and I loved it. And I worked, of course, with the late Michael Boland, who was uh, uh, an incredible leader, and, uh, but also a hard taskmaster. 
And I ended up as the assistant national director of uh, CME. And I did that for some while until I had some health issues around the millennium. Uh, But I also was on the executive of the ICGP from the age of about 40. I really began to... um, to spread my wings a little bit in in other directions, and I I think they complemented each other the the work in the in the in the college and trying to develop pathways and that sort of thing within the college and the education all complemented the general practice uh, role. And I you know I had a very understanding husband who in those days uh, board meetings uh, were a full weekend away. And that would happen four or five times uh, a year. And uh, he would take over the five kids. The house would be chaotic when I came back, but the kids were all happy out. So it, it, it was good for both of us, yeah. And you were president of the ICGP as well. Yeah, that was at a later stage, yes. And that was a very interesting role uh, and still needs to be further developed, I think. Uh, there would have been some areas where other branches of the profession would would have been looking down on general practice so i felt it was part of my role was to show them that we were uh, equally uh, if not better um, used to patient uh, care than than they were and uh, to to raise the image of general practice uh, and i think it's gone from strength to strength i i think that uh, Good things come out of bad, and I think part of the um, the pandemic and COVID, general practice absolutely rose and responded to it in an incredibly organised and scientific way. Um, everybody was tuning into the the Zoom meetings, and it was um, absolutely fascinating to see how adaptable the profession was, uh, and uh, you know every. All all branches of medicine had challenges during that time, but I think general practice and Irish general practice really rose to the uh, to the call, and got the recognition for that too, didn't they? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, people like Mary Favier and Nula O'Connor, and uh, Mary was uh, I know Mary a long time because Michael Boland would have dragged her along to the tutor workshops before she was ever a tutor herself. So I I known her for a long time, and she's a force of nature. Uh, but would always be acting in the patient's best interest. And uh, we, as we, everybody talks about doing a half NULA and doing a NULA because of all of her wonderful communication skills and bringing in other people and getting other branches of profession to focus on what was our needs, I think was hugely important. And uh, they, they're sitting on NEFET and that I think has just that short two and a half to three years has hugely advanced um, Irish general practice. So you were president of the ICGP. You held, as you say, board roles. You were also president of the Medical Council. Yeah, I was, when I was last on the board of the ICGP, the the ICGP have a representative on the Medical Council and Richard Brennan from Kilkenny was the the person inside you and his term of office had come to an end so they set up a small group within the college to try and uh, find the next person and uh, they offered it to me and it was it was um, a long decision that I took as to whether I would do it or not and as I said my husband is a lawyer and um, he always said I should have been a lawyer 
and that I'd have made a lot more money. And uh, I remember we talked about it and he, he said he said to me, I think you should do it. I think you'd be good at it. And um, so I did. And that term of office is five years. And um, I was a member of the council and I found the work absolutely fascinating. It was really, really interesting. And I, I will say this now, and I've said it before, I could not fault the actual staff in the council. There wasn't a single person who wasn't there to try and help every member of council. Uh, I have never been treated so respectfully uh, as I was by all of the staff in the council, from from the, the, the cleaner right up to, to the very top. So everybody was trying to facilitate work and um, the workload is enormous and I on that first five year stint I um, sat on the preliminary proceedings committee the PPC which was the filter is the filter committee for all complaints and the the amount of reading that you would have to do before a meeting was unbelievable Uh, but and I always found if you didn't miss a meeting then you were fine because you could you could continue. It's like the continuity of care, the continuity of inquiry was there. But if you missed a meeting, then you had double the amount of work. So it was enormously um, onerous, but absolutely vital work and very interesting. And um, I will be honest and say being president was not on my agenda, never on my agenda, not even then. And then a whole lot of people... Uh, approached me from within the the council to know would I put myself forward and uh, so eventually the last person I told was my husband and I remember sitting here in this kitchen on a Sunday evening because I was going to have to put in my nomination the next day and telling him and he just got up and walked out of the room and I thought oh god what am I going to do now and because he was retired and uh he came back about a half an hour later and he said, go for it. And uh, so I did and um, I was elected. And it was uh, an incredibly coherent council. Uh, there was no factions amongst us. There was good, robust discussion with respect. Uh, they were a really, really uh, positive uh, bunch of people. And a lot of them are not... Uh, doctors and in fact you know doctors give out about the lay used to give out about the lay majority on the council in my experience they were kinder than doctors were i can sometimes be horrified how unkind doctors can be to other doctors uh, but the lay majority brought a degree of common sense and i suppose that was my motivation i wanted to see that the council was exercising common sense and understanding at times when patients were under pressure and understanding when doctors were under pressure. Law is very cold and unemotional and, uh, of course, people are not. And uh, to marry those two is difficult because you have to apply the law. The law is the law is the law of the land. And uh, the council gets a lot of, I don't want to use bad language here, but a lot of people decry it and give out about it but haven't a clue really what they're talking about when they do it and if you went in there and uh, 
did some work with them you just would see the the positivity and the the the, the desire to do things the right way was hugely the very motivated um, group of uh, both the council and the staff uh, it was an incredible experience but of course COVID came in the middle of it and uh, you know my mother used to say you like a challenge and uh, this was some challenge not just on the practice front but uh, on the medical council front and we had a huge amount of uh, guidelines to issue and support and telephone calls that were going on until midnight and zooms and I was doing two and a half days in the practice and two and a half days in the council. So it was literally from the surgery to my study upstairs to the surgery to my study upstairs. And a Zoom meeting, you might, I might have had seven or eight Zoom meetings in a day. And now you'd have meetings before COVID and you'd be traveling from maybe RCPI to RCSI or, or around or the HSE or wherever you were going and you'd get a gap. But you literally, you would literally might have five minutes between one Zoom meeting and another. I hope I did a good job. I think I did a good job. I certainly gave it my all and my brain, when I stopped, I'd say it was six months before I slept properly. Mm -hmm. My mind was just going round and round round, because there were so many things you were juggling all of the time, you know. Energy, isn't that one of the big elements involved in being a leader? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've always had a lot of energy always and um so it was best if it was channeled and uh it's uh but there's energy and energy and i think those 18 months uh during covid when i was uh president those those were probably the busiest uh 18 months of my life Mm -hmm. yeah very intense time yeah but very glad i did it yeah Yeah. because you're, you're retired now but you know, you said on, on, on Twitter X there, uh, uh, I am not retiring, watch this space. Are you ready to tell us what you're going to do now? Well, um, I, I said I was taking the month of January off and I did take the month of January off. So now I have, I have a few um, things in, in the pipeline. I'm going to uh, throw my hand at a little bit of locoming and see how that goes. I've never worked anywhere except my own practice in the last 40 years. So um, we'll see how that goes. And I'm you're keeping your hand in there. Yeah, I, I, I love the patient contact, but I don't know whether I'm going to love that with the anonymous patient. Um, and it's, it's, it's a different. So I, I'm just going to see how, how that works for me. I'm very happy uh, to mentor younger doctors. I'm there. I'm really um, sometimes uh, it, it's um, automatic that they gravitate towards the L one. Uh, just to get a bit of advice about things, and um, I think you can give a lot of advice, you know, a lot of experience, well, a lot of experience. Okay, and uh, sometimes you know a problem shared is a problem halved, and uh, but um, I've often w- within my uh, uh, colleague grouping, I'm often get asked to do things when there are issues, and I'm quite happy to do that, and. Um, then I am going to do some work with the ICGP on their leadership academy and, and the ways of teaching uh, leadership and how I learnt. Uh, I, uh, it's fascinating. I did uh, a very small workshop at one of, I was a trainer at one of the national trainers workshops on leadership and there was a lot of people attended it and um, I got them discussing the qualities that you need for good leadership and uh, like there were about 100 different qualities for leadership which is fascinating but I think the one that um, 
I think is most important is humility. Um, you don't know everything. Uh, you just do your best and hope that that's good enough. But there's there's natural leaders and then there are leaders who are um, coached is the wrong word, but mentored. I certainly remember the first ICGP leadership course and I gained enormously. And all of the people virtually who are in that went on to take on leadership roles within the college, like Eamon Shanahan, who is the current president, uh, Pat Durkin, who is the current vice president. Um, lots and lots. They all took on uh, Genevieve uh, Maguire, who was the uh, program director of the Galway training scheme. All of these people were on that uh, leadership course and it bore great fruit for the college. So I would hope that something in that style might um, come out of the, the new leadership academy that they're uh, projecting about. So all very interesting work. And in case there's any sense or, or any impression we gave that the Bray family practice has closed, it hasn't closed, does it? It's, 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 no, it's, it's moved. Uh, it's moved, yeah, into... Uh, it's, it's very different and it, the, the premises are very different and uh, it's moved into a business centre as a lot of uh, 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 practices are now besides shops and uh, uh, there's... Uh, I think there's a fast food restaurant next door. So it's, uh, that's where it is, yeah. Finally, Rita, what would you say to somebody, male or female, considering a career as a general practitioner? I'd say you need a few things. You need to like people. You need to work hard. And you also need to self-care. And I think the self-care bit has been very slow within general practice. It's always patients first and uh, doctor last. But how can you look after your patients if you don't look after yourself? And did you enjoy it? Loved it. Still do. Dr. Rita Doyle, thank you for joining me on this episode of GP Works. Remember, we've lots more episodes on our channel and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Aileen Amara and thanks for listening.